Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. I'm joined today by Liz Williams. Liz is a long-term campaigner on the importance of everyone benefiting from digital technology. CEO of Future.now, which is a business-to-business coalition focused on accelerating the UK's digital skills at scale. In 2019, Liz was awarded an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours for Services to Digital Literacy and Social Inclusion. And in 2020 and 2021, she was named by Computer Weekly in the top 30 most influential women in UK tech and was Women in Telecom's finalist at the 2020 World Communications Award. Liz, wow. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today to share your experience with us. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. I wonder if we might start by understanding who you are a bit more. Who are you, Liz Williams, MBE? (laughs) I never thought I'd be Liz Williams, MBE, that's for sure. So I'm a working class girl who uh, basically has spent her career working at the intersect of business society. I started my career at at BT and BT gave me a huge number of opportunities ranging from running charity programs. You know, I did a load of stuff with Comic Relief. I worked with a regulator. I did all sorts of interesting things because that's what comes with a big company. But of course, it's a technology company. And, you know, my career, when I look back at the things I did there, I always was going back to the relationship between business and people and society. And I think the golden thread that's really run through my career has been the human impacts of digital transformation. And that's the thing that I get really excited about. I don't get excited about technology for technology's sake. I get excited about technology and what it can do for people and their life chances. Yeah, I can really hear that coming through in the way that you describe it. How did that happen then? How did you make that link between technology and its impact on humanity, if you like, earlier on in your career? I suppose, I mean, I've been working on digital inclusion for about, this is awful, um, about two decades, frankly, and increasingly saw how digital was beginning to transform our lives. And you only have to look at what's happened over the last two years and the pace of that change and how that's accelerated but also seeing people being left behind in that so and and largely people assuming that that was about maybe the older generation or about certain groups of society that and that it would largely get sorted and you know that's something that I didn't believe was the case I became I volunteered and went on the board of an amazing organization called the Good Things Foundation it wasn't called it then but I now chair which is the UK's largest digital skills charity and and it worked through a, a network in local communities and that local community thing is where you really start to see where digital matters you see how digital can enable people to do things that they didn't think possible but also I've done quite a bit of work around social mobility and that relationship between digital and people's life chances and that's very much led me to where I am now as chief exec of future.now where we're working with businesses to unblock that digital skills pipeline making sure that all working age adults have got the skills that they need the very basic digital skills that they need to thrive in our world today and that that whole thing about if you look at what happened during the pandemic I I think back to 20 years ago when you know I was having those conversations about digital and the potential it had and I look at where we are now and you think about you know the last two years and unfortunately for a lot of people they didn't have the digital capabilities whether that was about the devices or whether it was about data or whether it's about skills 
And that increasingly is going to make such a difference to whether digital boosts our social mobility in the UK. We hear so much about levelling up or whether if we don't invest in people's skills and really help them, that it just compounds those inequalities that exist today as we become a digital first nation. And thinking about Future.Now, then how does that organisation work to get rid of the exclusion that exists around people who don't have those digital skills? What does it actually do? So first of all, we're not talking about this as an inclusion issue. What we're talking about is an opportunity for business. So actually, business has brilliant relationships with people, whether that's your employees, whether that's your customers, whether that's your supply chain. So what we're doing is, and we've been set up by business, which is amazing. We've got a brilliant group of businesses that have backed us with funds from Accenture to PwC um, to others. And what we're doing is we're really shining a light on the issue and the opportunity. And I don't talk about it as being a doom thing because nobody wants to get involved with something that's doomful actually it's a quest you know people don't realize that there are 10 million people in our country that don't have the foundation skills to turn on a device there are 11.6 billion people in work without the digital skills to work that the government define as being essential so that's being able to collaborate online book leave or use cloud computing that community is not well understood by business businesses like many of us you, you kind of will assume it's as I said earlier maybe an older person issue but actually a large proportion of the people that are without the digital skills that they need are under 60 and there's actually a lot of people that are young that because they have a smartphone people confuse that with digital capability but they're not so what we're doing at future.now is we're bringing business around the issue so they understand it better but we're also working with them to help them provide meaningful opportunities for people to acquire those skills but also not doing it in silos so not having individual organizations creating their own content but saying hey you know what have we already got out there what are the gaps and how can we do that together and we've got some brilliant examples of businesses that perhaps wouldn't normally work together that now are And that's really exciting. It is. And thinking about, you talked about it as a quest and you said it's a business focus. There's real power in that, isn't there, in terms of just expanding the talent pool for organisations to people? Absolutely. I mean, people often talk about the lack of of high-end digital skills. And I talk about it being a pipeline. And I say, well, of course, you've got a gap at the top because the pipeline's blocked. If we've got 11 million people in work who haven't currently got those basic skills, what does that mean? What does that mean for them? What does that mean for business? If you're a retailer, you know, and you've got you're transforming your business digitally and and you're hoping that your customers are going to come with you. Let's let's not just think it's about employees. If people haven't got the skills to be able to engage with you in the way that you are imagining that they will in the future, then you're just going to leave them behind and your digital plans will fail. And I think also, you know, I mean, I was the social mobility commissioner till last October and I spent a lot of work looking at the relationship between digital and the future of work. And it's a sad fact that lack of digital skills is trapping people in lower paid jobs if you haven't got digital skills today you know actually even applying for a job is really difficult an example I use is somebody I know recently you know had applied for a job in a warehouse an entry-level role they found the job online they applied for the job online they were interviewed online all of their training online the first time they turned up and actually met people was their first day starting work and the warehouse was also very digitally enabled so that bar keeps moving if you 
you haven't got the digital skills to be able to apply for jobs and then you haven't got the digital skills to be able to retain yourself in those jobs, then it's really difficult. So, you know, this is a real opportunity for everybody that we build a nation of digitally confident and capable consumers. And those people are out there among us. Then probably you and I have not got all the digital skills we need. But there's this very clear bar that the government has set around essential digital skills. And Future.now is all about helping everybody get to that baseline, because if you get people to the baseline, they'll continue to be able to grow and thrive. And say some more about that baseline then. What is that baseline that we're looking to get people to? So the government worked with industry back in 2015, I think was the first iteration of it. And they set up a framework. And within that framework, it's got five different skill areas. So the digital skills you need to problem solve, to communicate, to transact, to handle information. So things like, you know, can you find out the answer to something on Google? Can you use email? Those skills are there. And there are three levels. So the first one is the very, very basics. Can you turn on a PC? That's the foundation levels and some real basic skills there. There's seven tasks that you need to be able to do to say you've got the foundation skills. And then there's the skills for life, which are exactly that, you know, the emails, the being able to pay a bill online, being able to buy something. And then there's the skills that you need for work. And it's basically a framework that moves you up. But even at work level, they're very basic skills. This is not about high-end algorithm management. This is very, very basic. And as I say, there are 11.6 million people that are in the workforce but don't currently have what the government define as those essential digital skills to work. And, you know, I think that's that's a travesty. How do we know that? How is that measured? So every year, uh, the brilliant team at Lloyds Banking Group published the Essential Digital Skills Index. And I think that's on about its seventh year of iteration so it's it's a significant piece of work and that's where we get those data points from but you almost look at them you go they're so large I just I just can't quite believe them and part of my job is to really shine a light on them the the data is consistent it shows it's come through time and again and most recently they've just published the business digital skills index and in that it's it shows us that half of sole traders and sole traders are a good barometer for the man on the street you know the kind of group half of sole traders don't add the essential digital skills. And 35% of those sole traders aren't using their mobiles to run their businesses. And if you just think about that, I mean, the number of small businesses that had to stop when the pandemic hit because they didn't have the digital capability to just move across, those figures are really worrying. But as I say, you know, these are not difficult skills. They are the very basics. And with concerted effort, with concerted energy, we can get everybody up to that baseline. And we should have an aspiration to build a nation of digitally confident and capable consumers and frankly you know I think one of the biggest challenges and you'll probably you'll understand this because you're a coach there's also that whole thing about human nature and how we feel about things that we can't do you know nobody wants to talk about what they can't do we're all a little bit embarrassed about this thing so actually part of our job is to normalize it in the same way that every time I stand up in front of a group of people they'll assume that I'm the most digitally capable woman on on earth because you know I've got all these accolades that relate to it and I'll turn around to them and say just so you know my kids do all the programming of everything in my house same as yours do because that's just what real life is like and the technology always confounds all of us but if you're digitally confident you have the ability to kind of go it's the phone it's not me or it's the wi-fi's dropped off but actually if you don't have that basic digital confidence and capability every time something happens to you it makes your shoulders drop a little bit further 
and it didn't you. So that whole thing about how we make this a, a conversation that we're willing to have and, and talk about is really important to solving it. I'm tempted towards a link towards literacy levels. Are they connected? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I was having a conversation with the team that run the National Numeracy Campaign only a couple of weeks ago, and there is a huge connection. I mean, often people that don't have these skills, often there's multiple levels of deprivation. But I think digital is slightly different in that actually people who are you know very numerate and very literate just still may not have the ability to just simply acquire these skills without intervention and support and I think that's what we're talking about here is assumptions and we've done quite a lot of work on this assumptions that people can just do this because you and I picked up a phone and just got on with it then everybody else should be able to do that and that's blatantly not the case and we definitely don't bring young people through the education system with you know real digital capability they are often consumers of digital technology they don't understand how it works Um, when you are out speaking to business leaders and banging the drum for improving the levels of essential digital skills what's the appetite in British industry to do that where are you finding areas of real buy-in and perhaps any blockers I think business understands there's a digital skills crisis there's no question of that but often organizations are gravitating to the higher end skills gaps because they're feeling those acutely but one of the things that we found at future.now is where we start to talk to business about particularly the framework they say this is making sense to us so previously it's been digital is a huge area and skills is a huge area and it's been quite nebulous but actually through the framework you've got something that's very specific by the way it's not perfect I'm not saying you know oh if we give everybody the essential digital skills everything will be good in the world in in terms of digital literacy but it's a really really good start and you know when you go and talk to organizations so retailers I've had conversations with a number of the really big retailers that are part of our our consortium at future.now yeah i'll say oh you know one of the things is about you know people not being able to book leave online or not being able to access their pay slips and i say we see that this manifest in our business we just hadn't quite made the link to the fact that there was this thing that is the essential digital skills framework that actually maybe we have a role to help people acquire those basics and often the assumption will be that people are further along their journey and then because you're not building again a really firm foundation going back to that thing about people don't want to talk about what they can't do you know people will just kind of go along with it so actually we've seen an amazing response from business and we've also seen businesses really wanting to work together so I'll give you one example you know we've currently got Salesforce, Network Rail and Barclays working together on a pilot program looking at what are the skills that frontline workers need and they're basically looking at a team of people within Network Rail and using some of the Barclays digital legal content and other content from other organizations to say is that a way of helping Network Rail accelerate skills people so it's really interesting interesting when you start to see business once they get it wanting to work together to solve it I mean I think that's one of the beauties of this is that you know it, it's not about anybody working in competition it is genuinely about a real life problem that is both about people's personal prosperity it's also about economic prosperity and it's about business resilience there are so many areas where if we get this right it will just benefit all parts of the equation really I wonder if the last couple of years have actually perhaps added to the appetite to do that because business has had to adapt so much hasn't it to working in in the digital space as you said earlier in the last couple of years if you didn't have those essential digital skills you really couldn't have shown up you 
actually couldn't have shown up. Yeah, I, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic and there there isn't much positivity you can say as you're facing a pandemic. But I remember having conversations with people in this space saying, this is it. This is the time when there's going to be huge amounts of money for digital inclusion, whether that's devices, data or skills. But actually, business has really got the skills bit for sure. And business has done great stuff in terms of donating devices and data and, and things like that. But I, we haven't got systemic solutions to those problems. And with my work with the Good Things Foundation and their online centres network, we just heard heartbreaking stories of people who, to your point, just had their agency taken away because they weren't digitally enabled. And, you know, people that had been previously running online centres, doing digital training that had to shut their doors, were literally walking the streets looking for red flag markers in people's doors that needed food and salt. And it was very easy to make assumptions that people had those skills. I mean, I got very angry at one of the first letters that went out from government instructing people to shield because it was just peppered with internet internet addresses. And it said, you know, if you haven't got anybody to help you, here's another internet address. And, you know, everybody starts to assume that because you can do something, that that's everybody else's reality. And there's 10 million people that can't turn on a device today. That's not that's not their reality at all. Really thinking about the repercussions of this across things like healthcare provision, just being able to access your GP online is how most of us are doing that now, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I, so, I mean, I think you can very quickly become depressed about it. But actually, you know, if we understand it, we can tackle it. And to your listeners, you've got people that are business leaders, you know, people, you can get the hearts and minds of senior leaders. But actually, if you get the middle managers and you get the junior managers, they're the ones that really make things happen on the ground. And, you know, I'd be asking them and saying to them, you know, what assumptions are you making? If you've got employees or you've got customers or you've got your supply chain, what do you know about the digital skills of those people? And what can you do to help? And how can you motivate people just through day-to-day activity to be able to learn something new and don't don't assume that because you know people have got smartphones they're digitally confident and don't assume that just because they're younger people they've got all those skills actually go and look at the essential digital skills index go and look at your sector even the tech sector has something like 80 percent people have got the essential digital skills that's 20 percent that haven't and that's in the tech sector you know retail construction are you know in a much more different much more challenging position but those numbers have moved but don't assume that because we've been through this pandemic and you've been able to carry on online and your digital skills have grown that everybody else's have with them because some people are now more marginalized and more excluded if, if you don't feel it's your world it's it's really hard to take those first steps yeah and I guess this is sort of mapping into some basic leadership behaviors anyway isn't it around noticing the people who work for you and with you and understanding you know the different needs that aren't like yours I wonder if we could move our conversation towards your leadership experience and that story because I know that you made a big decision after a long time in the corporate world to leave it and head more in the direction you find yourself in now how did that happen yeah I mean it's um I said to you you know I spent 30 odd years in corporate life and I absolutely adored it I had the most brilliant time because working in large organizations you can really make a difference and I always had this thing about I kept moving towards kind of social purpose in everything that I did you know, I led really big social purpose programs in BT. And I knew that corporates have really big levers to pull. And you understand that. But there comes a point where, well, for me anyway, I knew the kind of leader that I wanted to be. 
and the things I wanted to stand for. And although I'd never been prevented by doing anything within my large corporate background, I also knew that probably I needed to put myself in a slightly different environment, a more challenging environment. And I also had a bit of a life moment because I had a breast cancer diagnosis that the moment somebody says to you, you've got cancer, your life flashes front of your eyes and you think, gosh, what have I stood for? And um, I was really fortunate because I had brilliant treatment and I'm perfectly fine. And, and as a result of that, it really got me to think about what I wanted to do in the next stage of my career career and I, I'd worked with a lot of people I had you know lots of places what I was thinking of doing and then suddenly this opportunity came with this new organization that was just an embryo of an idea the opportunity to lead that and here I find myself now basically managing an organization that's been a startup that's been incubated that will become a charity this year in its own right managing business development convincing organizations to want to fund it convincing people to come and want to work with me and it's just wonderful but it's also probably one of the hardest things I've ever done because it's very different working in a small organization you don't have all the support structures around you I'm literally having conversations about when we become a charity in our own right what will our cookie policy need to look like and these are things I never thought I would be losing sleep over in the same time of have we got enough money to do the things that we want to do next year so you know you you sometimes get nudges from the strangest places the things that don't want to happen to you result in the most amazing outcomes and I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. And I look back at my cancer diagnosis and I did say at the time, if this thing doesn't kill me, it's probably going to be one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And it certainly gave me a lot of grit and determination about where I wanted to go next. And that resilience as well, to be able to just sort of step into the unknown and see what happens. Yeah, it was a big decision, but it's also, I think, I think you know when there's a point in your career when you could take a really comfortable route or you have to just go and try something new. And for me, that that moment came. And say it to anybody, you know, go go and try lots of different things. And one of the things that I've found most interesting is when you start to invite people to help you or to help you answer some of the questions that you're not sure about, people are just amazing. But as a leader, I went through that thing of genuinely believing that leadership was about having the answers and leadership's not about that leadership's about being able to ask the right questions and knowing where the advice might come through and knowing what to listen to but I you know that's one of the things I really learned was at the point where I was questioning what I wanted to do going and having some just very open conversations with people just left led to the most brilliant gifts in terms of their wisdom and insight that, that just helped inform where where I wanted to go and it helped make the decision easier but also knowing that as you go through you you have to keep doing that you know Make sure you find the time to go and have the coffee with the people and keep that network alive because people people really want to help you. So, you know, ask those questions, I think. And that's really good advice. Ask the questions, ask for help and sort of step out around yourself and do that. Yeah, and it can come, you know, the last few years, I mean, that thing about digital and what it gives you. I've built some of the best friendships that I've ever had with people that I have, well, I, I hadn't for the first year met face to face. I mean, you and I were laughing offline about you don't know if someone's tall or not. I've had people that I've genuinely considered to become really really good friends that I've literally stood in front of I said I never knew you were that tall but you know I could tell you all everything about their family and their values and you know what I think of them and how I've worked with them over the year but I didn't know what they they really look like so I, I think that thing about how you how you build relationships I mean relationships are what makes the world go round, and you know I think on a business level that's true as well and I wonder how you've invested in yourself in terms of giving yourself leadership skills or what training or personal 
development have you done in that space? I think I'm probably the world's worst person on this. So I think it's really, uh, I think it's really easy to give advice to others on this area. And then you look at yourself and you think, did I do that? And it's one of my biggest regrets, actually, as I was moving along in my career, I didn't particularly invest in myself. Um, and I do try to now. I try to carve out time in my diary. And, and that, that sounds ridiculous when you say time in your diary. But what I realize is I'm really good at working. But I can I can do meetings. Like I can I can plan strategies. I can do all of those things. But actually, what I'm really bad at is managing my time. And, and recognizing that, I think, is, is really important in yourself. And I know I'm bad at managing my time. So what I do now is I, I actually block out time in my diary for that part of what I think is important in terms of my personal development I don't always use it but I do try to do that but I also recognize that development comes in all sorts of places and actually even those conversations that I was talking about earlier you you learn so much by either being the person that other people come to and ask you a question and then you start to hear their stories and you can apply it to yourself or being able to go and talk to others about the challenges that you're you're having so I think learning comes in all shapes and places but I do think it's important to treat it with the same level of respect for yourself as you would for anything else. So diary it would be my advice to anybody that is like me and not very good at prioritising themselves. I'm thinking of a really lovely TED talk by Laura Vanderkam who talks about when we say we're too busy, what we mean is it's not important enough. And, and I, you know, I, I had that com- I have that conversation with my husband all the time. It's been one of the things that I've, I've learned over the last few years where he says to me, oh, you know, we haven't had time to do that. I said, no, well, I think we made a choice. We might not have done it consciously. And I think, I think that's the difference. If you put the time in your diary and then you consciously choose to remove it, that's very different. But actually, you know, if I go back to how I felt after I'd had a cancer diagnosis, I really felt at that point that I'd been dancing through life. I I thought that life was limitless. And I also thought that time was limitless. And that was probably one of the things that I recognise in my own you know, my own career, I, there's often been points where I just thought I could just keep working. I could just do more. But actually, as a leader, what you need to do is you need to be able to inspire others and enable others to do more. And that's not about working people to the ground, by the way. It's just about recognising that you can't you can't do it all yourself. But actually, that thing about conscious decision making, I think, is, is really important. I think that's spot on. You know, what are you prioritising and why are you prioritising it? And also, the other one that I think is brilliant and was a bit of a game changer for me is, is just that line that says, so if I'm saying, yes to this what am I saying no to because it's really easy to say yes and it's not very easy to say no so actually sometimes putting that slant on it I found that personally quite a, a game changer for my own mindset um that's a whole nother podcast I think that one, <laughs> I think we could talk about that for hours I completely agree with you the systemic impact of all the extra things that you take on you do have a finite amount of time available to you in your working day or in your non-working day and if you're saying yes to something, you're definitely saying no to something else. But nobody tells you that, do they? You know, I think I wish that people had told me that when you're more junior. I wish somebody had sat me down and say, be be the person that, you know, is inquiring, is is easy to work with, that grasps opportunities. But make sure that in grasping the opportunities, you know what you're saying no to by saying yes to that thing, because time is not limitless. That feels like a really useful place for us to probably leave our time together today. I wonder if there's any parting last words of wisdom that you might like to gift the listeners of our podcast in 
terms of your experience? I have to say, I mean, this isn't a leadership thing. I just have to give you the tactical thing that says, I'd love you please to go and inquire about digital skills around your, the capabilities around you. But in terms of being leaders, I think it's um, find your place, find your leadership style, be the person that you want to be. And people will come and want to work for you because you're that leader. And I know that sounds quite trite, but what I've found is when I've actually really stepped out and been my own authentic self, actually, I've been much better for that rather than sometimes trying to be the leader that maybe, you know, is the conformist stroke on it. Be a human leader, I think it's really important. Thank you so much. What an incredible legacy you are building around you as a leader in the digital literacy space. Thank you for sharing some of that with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Cornell. It was produced and edited by Nick Hilton for Podo.